Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Clinical Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Benarella. Today's episode is going to be on corticosteroids. They're sort of the cousins of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that just go hand in hand uh, for for a podcast. So I thought this was a good uh, follow-up to the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Now, doing all my due diligence here, this is going to have to be two podcasts. It would be an excessively long podcast, which I don't really like to do and I think are a little a little boring as a matter of fact. So this will be a two-parter. So part one, we're going to cover sort of the generalities of corticosteroids, what they are, things like that. Part two will be side effects, precautions, drug interactions, and then therapeutic uses. Okay. So I want to thank you for listening to my podcast. It's been uh, just about one year, and it's sort of hard to believe that I've come through this in 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 uh, in the fashion that I've had. I have had you know increasing numbers of listeners and increasing rates of my podcast being listened to, even though I do zero advertising. I'm not on any social media, so it's actually quite fascinating that anybody actually finds this podcast, but I think people are finding it, whoever you are out there in podcast land, enjoyable, hopefully informative and educational, and you've been able to take some of this information that I've, I have given and learn something with it. So thank you to everyone that listens to this podcast, and if you would share it with other people, I would really appreciate that. Okay, so let's get into corticosteroids. Let's talk about some generalities. So a lot of people will refer to corticosteroids as just steroids. And steroids is an okay term, but it's actually not the most descriptive term because steroids are hormones that are created in the body from cholesterol. And there are several different types of steroids. There's corticosteroids, and then there's anabolic or androgenic steroids. Anabolic or androgenic steroids are the steroids, if you think about large bodybuilders like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who has admitted to taking, you know, air quotes, steroids, anabolic steroids or androgenic steroids. And let me give you some of the drug names, uh, such as nandrolone, stanozole, trenbolone, or testosterone. Testosterone is an androgenic steroid. It's a sex, sex steroid, sex hormone. It's on muscle, increases bone density, and things like that. So when you think about an in anabolic or androgenic steroid, men are men because we have a lot of testosterone compared to women, and the same in animals. And anabolic steroids pack on way more muscle than is, you know, quote, normal. So we're not really talking about those types of steroids. We're talking about corticosteroids. So critical steroids are steroid hormones synthesized with cholesterol in the adrenal gland. The adrenal gland, it's a bilateral gland. There's one on every, uh, one on every, one on each side of the body. Uh, it's relatively small. It's about the size of an almond, probably in a person. So in dogs, it's going to be a little bit smaller than that. Uh, and in a cat, it's going to be, you know, maybe the size of a peanut or smaller. So they're relatively small and they sit at the cranial pole of the kidney. They're not really part of the kidney. They might be attached to the kidney or they might be attached to the body wall high up. And there's two types of corticosteroids. There's mineralocorticoids and glucocorticoids. 
So let's talk about the differences. So mineralocorticoids, and a mineralocorticoid is called aldosterone. Its primary function, again, created by the adrenal gland, is to maintain electrolyte homeostasis. Electrolytes are such uh, chemicals as sodium, potassium, chloride, magnesium, and calcium. And that's really the genesis of how your body works is electrolytes. And it does have some wound healing effects. Now, the glucocorticoids are sort of the opposite of the mineralocorticoids. And some of those drugs are, or chemicals are prednisone, prednisolone, and dexamethasone, just some common names. I'm not going to cover the name of every uh, potential steroid. And glucocorticoids maintain homeostasis in the body, which is your body's biological imperative is to maintain homeostasis. So corticosteroids or glucocorticoids, they will metabolize protein, fat, and carbohydrate. They suppress inflammation. They suppress chemicals in the body created from inflammation such as histamine, cytokines, interleukins, white blood cells, also called leukocytes. And uh, glucocorticoids suppress cell-mediated immunity by stimulation of apoptosis and lymphocytes. Aha, apoptosis, we never talked about that. Apoptosis is, is generally thought of as programmed cell death. Every cell has a natural lifespan, and at some point cells are going to die. Well, using glucocorticoids, well, we lymphocytes, it's one type of white blood cell, will we'll kind of force or speed up that cell death. Glucocorticoids inhibit B cell and T cell expansion. They decrease circulating eosinophils and basophils. Eosinophils are specialized white blood cells that do two things. They're prominent in allergic conditions and they're prominent in parasitic infections. And basophils are probably the least well-respected of all the white blood cells in animals just from the fact that there's not very many of them and they don't really cause much of a problem. They're going to be associated with some allergic problems and some infections. Uh, monocytes. Monocytes are a very specialized. They're a very large white blood cell. They're circulating in the bloodstream, and then what happens is during an infection, the monocytes will get out of the bloodstream and get into the tissues, and at that point, they're called macrophages, and macrophages are sort of clean up white blood cells. They'll get out there and attempt to destroy any foreign invaders or clean up an abscess as an example. Glucocorticoids inhibit the margination of neutrophils. And in margination of neutrophils, neutrophils are, if we talk about the blood for a minute, the blood has several components to it. There's the plasma and then there's cells. And in the cells, there's just many different types of cells, right? You have your white blood cells, your red blood cells, and your platelets. Well, neutrophils are what's called PMN or polymorphonuclear um, neutrophils. And these cells are specialized white blood cells, primarily around fighting uh, bacterial infections. And they are circulating throughout the entire bloodstream. And sometimes that these uh, the body has a store of neutrophils that are sort of, you know, I'm going to use air quotes here, hanging out in the blood, just waiting to be busy, waiting to do something. And using glucocorticoids will keep these more in circulation and available for use in the body. Uh, glucocorticoids increase the release of mature neutrophils from the bone marrow. 
the bone marrow is a source of the uh, your red blood cells, your white blood cells, and your platelets. The same is true for animals. Glucocorticoids inhibit macrophages and monocytes from creating oxygen-free radicals. Oxygen-free radicals, that's O3, chemical identifier, is uh, free radicals are toxic to the body. Glucocorticoids inhibit fibroblasts and therefore reduce fibrosis and scarlet tissue formation. They may slow wound healing, and they probably will, but it also depends on the dose and the frequency and the duration of treatment, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. Has some effect on electrolyte balance, will maintain vascular permeability, stabilize cell membranes, and in acute inflammation, glucocorticoids decrease vascular permeability, which is really what you want, because you do want more cells getting out to the area of, of trouble. Now, one important part of all this is, so there's no such thing as a friend of mine used to say, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and it's true with glucocorticoids. Right, so when we say they're created by the adrenal gland, that means they're endogenous. That means they're part of the body's ability to basically handle stress. And mineralocorticoids are there to handle and regulate uh, electrolyte balance in the body. It's not a one-for-one. Mineralocorticoids do not just maintain electrolyte homeostasis, and glucocorticoids do not just fight inflammation. They, they have a little bit of spillover, just like we had talked about in the NSAID. Uh, episode about uh, COX, COX-1 and COX-2. COX-1 is not just about maintaining prostaglandins in the body, and COX-2 is not just about uh, inflammatory prostaglandins. They both have spillover into, into each area, and the same is true here of the mineralocorticoids and the glucocorticoids. But if, we, if there's a disease condition in the body where we give exogenous, that means outside the body, Glucocorticoids, we're going to suppress what's called abbreviated HPAA. That's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Now, that's a that's a lot, right? And what's really important here, uh, I will have some some pretty decent links down um, in the bottom of the, the uh, episode's page. And unfortunately, they really are not great uh, that are available on the web. Flow charts, which I kind of like, which really is, is a very simple way to look at this. But basically, the brain sends chemical signals down to the adrenal gland to produce these hormones. And there's a feedback mechanism, meaning that if there's not as much feedback coming from the adrenal gland, the body will trigger the adrenal gland to put out more hormone. And then as that happens, now there's more hormone to feedback to say, okay, you can kind of put that down a little bit. When we when we administer exogenous glucocorticoids, what you're doing is you are altering that feedback mechanism. So there is going to be some suppression of the adrenal gland and some suppression of the um, hypothalamus and the pituitary gland to release their hormones. So generally speaking, low doses, short-term use of, of glucocorticoids is not a problem. When you start talking high doses long-term, you are going to significantly impact the HPAA, and therefore you're going to need to wean down to allow the body time to build back up this ability to have this feedback loop. And I'll get into what happens if that doesn't happen.
So the primary functions of glucocorticoids, now for the remainder of the episode, we're really talking about glucocorticoids. There's going to be a few mentions of mineralocorticoids, but that's not the purpose of this conversation. This conversation is really about glucocorticoids. So the primary functions are uh, for anti-inflammatory use. Now, secondarily, we had talked about NSAIDs as a contrast. NSAIDs do three things. They're anti-inflammatory, they're anti Pyretic, which is takes down fever and their analgesics. Although technically glucocorticoids are anti-inflammatory, they're not true analgesics or antipyretics, but secondarily they are because again, inflammation, anybody that's seen a large abscess on an animal knows sometimes that those things are are, are quite painful. And they're painful because of all of the inflammation. And if you administer Abscess maybe isn't the, the greatest example for me to use here, but if you're going to, to take down inflammation, you're secondarily going to take down pain and fever as well. So it's not their primary, it's more of a secondary function. Glucocorticoids are used sometimes as replacement to cortisol, which is really what we're talking about here in the body. The body does make the glucocorticoid cortisol, um, and in a disease of adrenal gland insufficiency, I might as well throw out the name. Now it's called Addison's disease. Anytime you use a name like Addison's, that's a doctor, that is a human physician that that discovered the cause of um, of this problem in people, and it's usually named after that person. So even in veterinary medicine, we still call it Addison's disease, but that's an adrenal gland insufficiency, and mostly it's an insufficiency of a mineralocorticoid, although secondarily it's a, a an insufficiency or not enough of a body putting out glucocorticoids such as cortisol. Glucocorticoids are always used for diagnostic testing and for immunosuppression. Depending on you now, all this use is dependent upon on what's going on with the animal. So primarily, the labeled indications are used as anti-inflammatory, and then anything else, any other use is basically going to be off-label, extra-label. And we had talked about the veterinary client-patient relationship as necessary to must exist for a veterinarian to to prescribe or dispense these these drugs. Now, in in certain cases, such as intervertebral disc disease, which I'm going to get to, into in part two, I really like glucocorticoids for this. Non-steroidals in my hands don't seem to be quite as effective, and we'll get into why in a little bit, for diseases such as intervertebral disc disease. And coincidentally, they also can induce parturition. Now, it's not that big of a deal in in small animal, but in large animal, Giving doses of glucocorticoids will cause an animal to to give birth. Forms. There's almost every form available of these drugs. There's topicals, there's orals, there's injectables, there's there's formulations that go into the ear, go into the eye. Some can be injected intramuscularly, some can be injected intravascularly. Um, some can be injected intraarticularly, and I have not used that term before. That's abbreviated IA. That is an into-the-joint injection. So you have almost every route possible. Onset of action of these drugs, if you give it IV, it's going to be relatively quick. If it's on a, let's say it's a topical treatment or it's an oral, it's going to take a little bit longer. 
to be absorbed and then carried through the through the blood to the liver. And water-soluble drugs such as methylprednisolone, which I have not mentioned before, are much quicker to act than 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 drugs that are not water-soluble. That's a chemical. That is the chemical form of the drug. Methylprednisolone, sodium succinate, solumedrol is is a pretty good um, quick-acting and short-acting glucocorticoid that comes in a specialized container that um, you mix the it's a white powder you mix it together it's in a in a glass vial and you draw it up in a syringe it is a milky white product that you do inject intravenously and that has a very quick onset of action dosages i'm not going to get into specific dosages but we can break them down into basically low dose medium doses and high doses so low dosing of glucocorticoids is uh, called physiological diagnostic dosaging. What dosaging is rather small. It's 10 to, I'd say, at least 10 times, if not more, lower than uh, even an anti-inflammatory dose. And so physiologic diagnostic testing, when I talk about um, Addison's disease, we can uh, do a, what's called a dexamethasone suppression test. We want to see what's going on with the animal's adrenal gland. And if there's a problem, there can be tumors in the brain that are causing problems. And also to diagnose Cushing's disease, which is the opposite of Addison's disease. Addison's disease is hypoadrenal corticism. Cushing's disease is hyperadrenal corticism. And that means that the adrenal gland maybe has a tumor itself and it's just pumping out way too many, way too much cortisol. So we can use very low doses. Remember, I mentioned that feedback. This is why it's important to know the HPAA, because if you don't really know that that exists, you're not really sure how this test is actually working. But if we give that very low dose, we should be suppressing the feedback through the adrenal gland, and then you take blood samples, you take a before and an after, or two after tests, and that will determine what is going on in those diseases. So that's a physiological diagnostic use. The other reason is, if you've got a patient with Addison's disease, sometimes it is just a, although it's a very low percentage of cases, they only have a glucocorticoid insufficiency, not a mineralocorticoid insufficiency, and so a low dose of dexamethasone or prednisone or prednisolone will, will uh, be able to sufficiently treat that patient. And you would know based on clinical signs, if you administered those drugs and there was no impact, then you would definitely need a mineralocorticoid. Anti-inflammatory doses are, I'd say, the, the bread and butter of veterinarians' use of these glucocorticoids. Anti-inflammatory is exactly what it says. It's sort of a medium-range dose. You try to knock down inflammation, give the patient some more comfort, and then treat whatever the primary problem is. And sometimes, for example, an intervertebral disc disease, that's a herniated disc in animals, we glucocorticoids are the primary uh, therapeutic. And then high doses, when we talk about immunosuppression, we're using much higher, much, much higher doses of these drugs many fold times higher because you want to suppress the immune system because the immune system, to use a poor term, is haywire. It's causing the immune system itself is causing a lot of problems. Now, sometimes we know the cause of the uh, immune stimulation, and sometimes we don't. But regardless, 
glucocorticoids are the mainstay of, of some of these therapeutics in animals and also in people and usually combined with other drugs so that you can start leaning drugs down. Okay, so we have low doses of physiologic diagnostic dosing, we have anti-inflammatory dosing, which is a medium middle dose, and immunosuppressive dosages, which are at the higher end. And there's a, a plethora of different glucocorticoids, and they have a range of potency. So at the high end, we have drugs like oxymethasone, which is very long-acting. It lasts for at least 36 up to 48 hours. And therefore, it's good because you can use it every other day, which requires less frequent dosing of the patient, which is always good. And you get a middle-of-the-road potency, which is drug like prednisone. It's intermediate acting. It has an effect for about 12 to 24 hours. And then at the low end, most people would be familiar with high cortisone, which is short-acting, about 8 to 12 hours of duration. And, and you, for yourself, let's say you get a mosquito bite, and you put on hydrocortisone, you may need to, to use that topical two or three times a day. So that's every eight to 12 hours, depending on how frequently you are, are putting it on. And that is just the nature of the drug. The body is breaking that drug down rather quickly, and it does not have a long half-life. Let's talk about the MOA. MOA we had mentioned during the, the non-steroidal podcast is the mechanism of action. How is this drug? How, how do these drugs actually work? So the drugs went into the body, right? We said via injection, it could be intramuscularly, it could be intravenously, it could be a topical, it could be a They are metabolized by the liver, and that just means that the liver, the cells of the liver are breaking these drugs down. And then drugs such as prednisone are converted to cortisol, and cortisol is really the active product in the body. And what's left of these drugs is excreted by the kidney. And Glucocorticoids block the creation of phospholipids, some cell membranes. To remember again, during the non-steroidal podcast, we talked about how does inflammation actually occur, and there's trauma to a cell, and all of these chemicals necessary for inflammation reside in the cell, and the cell releases arachidonic acid to make cyclooxygenase, and we said that the non-steroidals block that conversion from happening. And with glucocorticoids, that is true, but it's also true that glucocorticoids are a much more potent suppressor of inflammation than non-steroidals are. And I can say that for myself, having had some disc disease myself as an example, how potent glucocorticoids are compared to non-steroidals. So glucocorticoids, on top of blocking the uh, arachidonic acid and the cyclooxygenase, they'll also block LOX, which is lipoxygenase, prostaglandins, leukotrienes, collagenase, and platelet-activating factors. So pretty much across the board, glucocorticoids are a much more potent and broad suppressor of inflammation than the non-steroidals. And, and to use a gun analogy here for a minute, that non-steroidal is sort of like a rifle shot. It's only picking out one little particular thing versus a glucocorticoid, which is more of a shotgun blast. If anybody's familiar with the use of shotguns, if you go clay shooting and you destroy the clay, that shotgun blast fans out. And that's exactly what a glucocorticoid does to move the body to suppress inflammation. Now, 90% of earth drugs are bound to plasma proteins such as albumin. And when you talk about binding to 
to albumin. When, when drugs are bound to albumin, they're unavailable for use in the body. So it's that remaining 10% of drug that's injected that is actually usable by the body. Hypersensitive is biologically active. And biologically active means it's able to, for example, cross the BBB, and that's a term that I have not mentioned before. The BBB is the blood-brain barrier. The blood vessels entering the brain are aligned with specialized cells that are only one cell thick. And they do allow certain compounds to pass through and certain ones not. The larger the compounds, if we measure their molecular size, I'm getting really down into the weeds, but if we measure their molecular size, you know which products can, can pass through this barrier and which cannot. And the barrier is there for protection to keep the, the organ safe as possible. And that 10% remaining in the blood of the uh, cortisol that's unbound, that's not bound to albumin, is available to actually pass through the blood-brain barrier. Its molecular weight is, and its size is small enough to pass through and have uh, effect inside the brain, as an example. It, it, these are incredibly potent drugs, even though a lot of it is bound, even that tiny fraction that remains is going to be active. All right, so that was mechanisms of action. So now let's talk about effects. So the effects of the glucocorticoids are manifold. It stimulates lipolysis, which is the breakdown of fat, the breakdown of protein, stimulates gluconeogenesis in the liver. That's the creation of glycogen and the increase in uh, circulating glucose in the blood. I said increases blood glucose, abbreviated BG which can be a precursor to diabetes mellitus, or abbreviated DM. An animal that is uh, overweight, that receives an injection of a steroid, can be pushed over into diabetes mellitus, and especially that can happen in cats after repeated injections of glucocorticoids. Um, the glucocorticoids decrease the cellular uptake and increase the hepatic creation of glycogen. Uh, prednisolone and methylprednisolone have a fair amount of mineralocorticoid activity themselves, and that leads to the retention of the electrolyte sodium and the excretion of the electrolyte potassium and the potassium excreted through the kidney. So there's an old saying, if you follow the sodium, the more sodium the water follows the sodium, okay? And so there can be some bloating, per se, with... Uh, the retention of sodium. Dexamethasone, on the other hand, basically has no mineralocorticoid activity compared to glucocorticoids like prednisone. Um, so dexamethasone will not cause potassium wasting or potassium excretion through the kidney and will not cause sodium retention. So there should be no bloating associated with dexamethasone. And every steroid has a a relative amount of uh, mineralocorticoid versus glucocorticoid activity. You just have to know which glucocorticoid is 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 which in, in that regard. Glucocorticoids will increase the renal excretion of calcium and will also inhibit osteoblasts. Osteoblasts are the cells that lay down new bone and will stimulate osteoclasts. Osteoclasts are the cell that will actually break down bone, and it increases the parathyroid hormone, or abbreviated PTH secretion, which again can affect bone healing. So 
short term, so let me wrap this up. This is going to uh, complete this part one of the podcast. And all of these effects are certainly possible at any dose, at, at, at any dosage, and with any frequency of dosing. But in general, it's going to happen with higher doses, longer treatments. Short courses of steroids are really going to do very little, except when we get to the clinical signs of side effects, which which can happen at actually relatively low doses, which I've experienced with patients, but that's why you talk to, that's why you counsel owners about potential side effects and when to stop drugs and call the, call the, call the veterinarian. Okay, so this brings a conclusion to part one of glucocorticoids or corticosteroids. I'm very appreciative. I'm very grateful to all of you for listening to this podcast. It has been it's been an interesting ride. I feel that the podcasts have been getting better as time has gone on. I hope that's the case. You know, if you ever want to email me, you ever have a topic you want me to talk about, be happy to hear what you're interested in. I appreciate it. Send your time listening to me. This is Dr. Panarella for the Clinical Science Podcast. See you again soon.